0: Labor Day weekend to you is, we're going to do an interlude on why I don't believe. And I'm going to tell you that I took the book, I called a friend of mine who's in publishing. And I said, who's the self-publisher I could use? Because there are all these different ones. I don't know which one to use. And I just need someone who'll print up, you know, a a, a thousand copies or so of this thing and, and, and get it for me. He said, well, send me a couple and let me look at it. So I sent them to him. And he very graciously, he happens to run uh, Baylor University Press. He said, well, Baylor would like to publish this book. And so the book is coming, and Baylor's publishing it. You still get a copy. It's going to be a hardbound book. I'm really stoked about it. They picked the cover last week. So the cover is is here. You're the first ones to get to see the cover. And so Psalms for Living, Daily Prayers, Wisdom, and Guidance. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to give you a taste Of some of these psalms. So class this morning is just amusing from some of the psalms. I did not do the handout to you because you got to come back. December 15th is the day the books should arrive. And so you come the Sunday after December 15th, you get your own copy and uh, uh, Merry Christmas. But meanwhile, to give you a little flavor, let's look at some musings from the Psalms. And we'll just look at a few different vignettes. They've got Dale, the points for home built into each one so that we can do it. Psalm 4, 6 through 7 is one day of, of the devotional. Here's what it says. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Now, here's my question. What is it that brings you joy? What... do you know how much trouble I had with that picture? None. I got it off Google Images. What is it that brings you joy? Now, it might be family. It might be food. might be drink. might be sports. People say money doesn't buy happiness. And it doesn't, but it makes it easier. It can sure avert some misery. Maybe it's popularity. Maybe it's success in a, in a world's eyes. What is it that brings you happiness? And if you can answer that question, what is it that makes me happy? Then you're going to begin to answer the question, what is it I find worth living for? Because those two things go together. Most people, most people do not live to be miserable. I think there may be a few who do. But most people live for the joy and the happiness of living. So what brings you joy? Look at what the psalmist said. The psalmist said, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. There is a joy that's deeper than happiness. There's a reason we have both words, joy and happiness, in the English language. They're they're synonyms, but they're not identical. There is a joy you can have even when life is dealing you a very raw hand. There is a deep-seated joy you can have in the midst of suffering, in the midst of travail in the midst of problems. And the psalmist saw this as something that happened when God would lift up the light of his face. Now we know God is not a physical being the way we are. The face of God is an interesting concept that's found in the Bible a lot and in the Old Testament a lot. But this key to this psalm, I believe, is found in Leviticus chapter 6, verses 24 to 26. And so we'll take a moment and we'll look at Leviticus 26, 24 through 26. Did I say that right? That's not the right passage. Six, I started to say, am I crazy? That's earlier. Leviticus 6, 24 through 26. Yeah, this is what I want. So, Leviticus 24 through 26. Okay, look, I'm like really off right now. This is why we have typos. Okay, it's somewhere in Leviticus chapter 6. Or it's like chapter 4. Hold on. I can quote it. I can't find it, but I can quote it. I did what? It's here? You, you're seeing it. I'm not seeing it. Anyway, let me tell you what it says. This is the, it's called the ironic blessing in Leviticus. And it's where God told Moses that this is the blessing to be pronounced. The Lord bless you. And keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. And be gracious to you. Numbers, not Leviticus. Thank you. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. You know, I was right next door to it. Yeah, because it's in the chapter with the Nazarite vow. Aaron's blessings. Here we go. Thank you, See, I'm so glad people know what's going on. Speak to Aaron and his son saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Now that's where joy comes from. When the Lord's face shines upon you, the Lord is blessing you. He's taking care of you. He's giving you peace. He's residing upon you. You are in relationship with God Almighty. If you are in a relationship with God Almighty, it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. You will find in your life joy. A joy that is greater than anyone can find in anything they're eating or drinking. The joy of the Lord and there are other passages that will come from this. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Other passages that teach us rooted in a relationship with God is this contentment, this joy, this peace that's beyond understanding. And so I wanted to start these psalms with us today with one just asking that, would you pray with me? Lord, it is our prayer that your face would shine upon us. Be gracious to us, O Lord, pour your blessings out upon us so that regardless of where we are in this life, we find ourselves being held by you strengthened by you, encouraged by you, guided by you, that our lives will be fully enveloped in who you are and where you want us to be. Through Jesus, amen. Next vignette. Psalm 6, 2-3. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing, Heal me, O Lord, my bones are troubled. My soul is also greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Now, I like this psalm. The English Standard Version is got a bit of a British, I think, influence to it. I may be wrong, but that's the way I see it. We don't use the word languishing very often. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. When was the last time you languished? If you don't speak clearly, you can say, Languish is the English that I speak. But that's language. It's different than languish. The word languish has a wide semantic range of meaning in the Hebrew. It means weak. Weak. It means feeble. It's the picture of someone who's having trouble standing, having trouble moving, having trouble going, having trouble handling what life has thrown at them. And so here you've got the psalmist who is crying out for God to be gracious in the midst of languishing. In the midst of weakness and being feeble. Now, there are times in our lives, not just physically, but spiritually and emotionally and intellectually, where we are feeble. Where we are weak. Where we're having trouble handling. We just... uh, uh, What is the old expression? My get up and go, got up and went. We, We just... The the Ziggy cartoon, do you remember Ziggy? My high school debate coach had on the wall of our high school debate room, this is pretty funny, now I'm going back 40 years, a Ziggy cartoon with him sitting there, blank faced, and underneath it said, sometimes I just sits and thinks. And sometimes I just sits. This is the time where you can't even bring yourself to think. Well, you just don't have it anymore. And the psalmist knows where to go. The psalmist says, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I'm languishing. Heal me. Take care of this for me. But God's not answered that prayer yet. Because the psalmist has to say, how long? And you get the impression this is the psalmist who's been asking it for a long time. And so you're just sitting there and the psalmist is saying, the clock is ticking, God. How long do I have? I mean, look, I've been needing help for some time. We know what it's like to need help and to cry out to God and it doesn't come immediately. Sometimes it does, but most of the times in my life it doesn't. And if you read through this psalm, toward the end of the psalm, the psalmist says, "The Lord has heard my plea; the Lord accepts my prayer." That's a co- that's a comment on out of faith, because the psalmist isn't experiencing it yet. The psalmist is still in languish land. The psalmist is still hurting. The psalmist is still wondering, "God, hello, how long? Hear the clock, bang, bang, bang." But the psalmist in faith knows that God's heard his plea or her plea. If you're a woman praying this. And that the Lord accepts her or his prayer. And that's where we can be with this. When we're in those times of travail and those times of languishing. We can be confident as we seek God and ask God to heal us. That he will do so. We have a better way of saying that in faith than the psalmist did. Do you know why? Because we live after the death of Jesus. And we see in the death of Jesus the healing. We know in Jesus ultimate healing for all of us. So, that's your vignette. We're not in utopia. By the way, we'll get a little of this next week on wiser suffering. We don't live in utopia. People who think God's supposed to make heaven on this earth are people who haven't read the Bible. We live in a battleground. We're involved in battle. This is not utopia. God's goal is not to take fallen human earth man, woman, child and make it divine heaven. This will have to be rolled away. You don't get heaven until you've been born again in a way that's going to take care of your eternity. Because heaven is not going to be found on this earth in this form. That's the vignette. Okay, the Lord sits, next Psalm, the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. I like this passage. All in one passage, I find this intriguing. I find this scary. I find this humbling. And I find this encouraging. All in one. Let me tell you why. Intrigue. I am a lawyer. I get intrigued when I see that the Lord sits in throne forever. He's established his throne for justice. That intrigues the lawyer in me. Justice is consistency. If two people commit the same crime with the same circumstances, the same the same uh Uh, extraneous uh, uh, factors, everything's identical. And the judge gives one of them five years prison, and the judge gives the other one one week in jail. That's not justice, unless there is a rational reason for the difference in punishment. Justice means everything's treated the same. Justice means everyone, that th- th- there's a consistency. Now, the Lord has established His throne for justice. The problem for us is, justice means you sin, you die. Not you sin, uh, you got to do penance. Not you sin... Tisk, tisk, you're going to get put in spiritual timeout. Sin is something that is a wretched, terrible thing, regardless of how bad the sin is, in terms of the purity of God. And sin is something that's deserving of death. Sin brings death. That's the justice. That is it. And God's established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. And now all of a sudden my intrigue has turned into fear. The same thing I found interesting as a lawyer scares me as a sinful human being. It scares me because I know who I am. I know what I've done. I know the darkness in my heart. I know the darkness in my mind. I know the darkness in my deeds. I know that if God were to judge me in justice based on my merit, I am toast. It's not even close. Oh, I could sit here and say, well, you put them in the scales. No, this isn't way your are good versus your are bad. I'm talking about you. you know, nobody. You. You go to a judge. Yes, judge. I murdered that man, but I did some math. I've met probably six, seven hundred thousand people in my life I didn't murder. Now, you put this in the scales, Judge. I really murder very, very, very few people. If you look at it in terms, I just weigh it in the scales, That does not work in a court of law. You don't sit there to say, God, okay, God, I know I've sinned against you more than I can count. But, hey, I gave money at church. Hey, there are some sins I could have done that I didn't do. It doesn't work that way. So my intrigue over this can be frightful because of the humbling fact that I am a sinner. And if God is going to judge the world with righteousness and peoples with uprightness, woe is me a sinner. But Paul told us, In Romans 3.20, that there's a righteousness of God that comes apart from what we do. It's a righteousness that comes from our faith in Jesus. Because Jesus has taken the punishment that is due our sins. And if we trust him with our sins confess, repent, give them to Him, then those sins can justly be punished. God doesn't lose His justice in Jesus. God still judges the world with righteousness. He still judges the people with uprightness. But now I can be encouraged because in Jesus, that uprightness and that righteousness is mine. Not because of anything I've done, lest I should ever boast. But because of what He has done through His Son for me. I don't know where you are in your life. And I don't know how that strikes you. That the Lord sits enthroned forever. But He does. The same Lord that was enthroned 2,500 plus years ago when that psalm was written. Is the same Lord enthroned today. His judgment's not changed, his justice hasn't changed, his righteousness hasn't changed, but we now see how trusting in him, the righteous and just judge, can righteously judge us redeemed and forgiven. It's a marvelous thing. Okay, we're gonna take, we've got to roll. We're going this is taking too long. The wicked shall return to Sheol. Remember the Bible, God gives revelation over time. And so we, we don't have, you know, Abraham didn't understand at all. Okay. So over time within culture and civilization, God gives revelation throughout the biblical period until he is finished. And he still reveals in a different way through his Holy Spirit in the church as we grow to understand the Trinity and things like that. But Sheol was this concept that they had of, of a of, of a shadowy death. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God, for the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. I love poetry. That is Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry is not based on rhyme. You know, roses are red, violets are blue. Most poems rhyme, but this one doesn't. Uh, it's not based on rhyme. That the most common mark of Hebrew poetry is structures where phrases have nuanced meaning when compared to other phrases in the group. It's called parallelism. And so if you look at this psalm, I'm going to lose it if I put it on the overhead. The wicked shall return to Sheol is the first phrase. The second phrase, all the nations that forget God. The third phrase, for the needy shall not always be forgotten. The fourth phrase, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. We need to understand how those phrases bring out meaning for each other. So the first two phrases are a, are are, are um, they're, they're saying in essence the same thing. Let me highlight it: the wicked shall return to Sheol. All the nations that forget God. So what we're to understand as poets here is in the Hebrew mindset. What the Hebrew writer is saying is, wicked people are people that forget God. You say, well, I I don't forget God. I'm here at church on Sunday. Right. Doesn't say forget God on Sunday. It says forget God. So let's be careful here. And look at this personally. Where's God going to be on your mind tomorrow? And the next day. And the next day. Wicked people are those in this psalm that forget God. Then look at the twist for the next two verses that go together. The needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. So those next two verses, the needy are the poor. So you've got wicked people that forget God, and you've got needy people that are the poor. Now here's where the poetry really gets fancy. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. And then the twist. The needy will not be forgotten. See, so so that the, the poet is taking and tying the first two verses together about wicked people who forget the needy or forget God is tied to the needy people aren't going to be forgotten by God. Or by the righteous. That's the implication. So, if you forget the poor, you're forgetting God. Because God is not going to forget the poor. And the needy. So, if you want to be right before God, remember those that God won't forget. See what it is? So I love poetry, but I also love prose. So I wrote that psalm in prose for you. Here's the passage in prose. Don't be wicked and fail to help the needy. God's watching. That's the Mark Lanier version of of the passage. Next passage. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones... In whom is all my delight? We live in a hero culture. We live in a culture where, especially at younger ages, people have idols and heroes. And there are people who have LeBron James posters up in their room. There were people who had Oklahoma Sooner banners up in their rooms. <laughs> Sorry, nephew from Oklahoma who drove all the way down to watch the game yesterday. We live in a hero-driven world. Here's my question. Who holds your awe? Most people, most people, once you get to be over a certain age, they take down those other hero posters. Most people my age don't have a LeBron James poster up on their wall. I mean, when Becky turned 50, she took the Justin Bieber poster down. There's just there's just a time from from, from Sarah's room. Sorry. Uh, there, there just comes a time but that doesn't mean we don't have our own heroes. There are some people that might amaze you to be in the same room with. I mean, look, I'm not not here to tell anybody politically how to vote or anything like that. That's not my job. My job is to teach this class. I can tell you I'm not a huge fan of Donald Trump, and I can tell you I'm not a huge fan of Hillary Clinton, and if any of y'all want to stage a campaign for president, I'd be willing to consider voting for any of y'all before either of them. (laughs) Now, having said that... (laughs) Having said that, if the Donald or Miss Clinton came into this class next Sunday, there are a lot of you who agree with me politically that neither one of them would be your first choice to lead this country. But it'd still be kind of cool to get to meet them and get to shake their hand, get to talk to them. Doesn't matter if you. I hold them in absolute disgust. They're just people. You know, who holds your awe? Are you, look, or do, you, do you treat people who are successful in this world differently than you do people not deemed to be successful? Do you treat people with money differently than people who don't have money? Do you treat people with stellar education differently than you do people who've learned from the school of hard knocks? Do you treat people, you know, how? I like this. The saints in the land are the excellent ones in whom are all my delight. My heroes are you. People who get up, people who come to church on a Sunday morning when you could be doing something else. People who are trying to learn about the Lord. People who are intrigued about spiritual things. People who give of themselves in their times to do things for other people. That's who we ought to be finding to be our heroes. Because I want to tell you something. You tend to become like the people you adore. And that's the way we need to become. Watch who you surround yourself with. Our kids, watch who you surround yourself with. Because you'll become like them in some ways. Short, sweet, but a nice little psalm. As for me... I shall behold your face in righteousness. Who remembers the play? It was on Broadway. It was off-Broadway. Lots of high schools do it, Spell. Do you remember that play? It's a kind of a retelling in a modern sense of the Gospel of Matthew. It's, a, it's really good. It's got a real catchy song in it. The song is Day by Day. Do you know this song? Let's do it for just a moment. Be more clearly love the body follow the body. More nearly I found day, day. Day, day by day day by day day by day on, three things I See thee more clearly. Love thee more dearly. Follow thee more nearly. Day by day. Day by day. It keeps going. Day by day. It's a, it's a song that, that will stick in your brain. And it's not a bad one to get. Three things I pray, to see thee more clearly, love thee more dearly, follow thee more nearly, day by day. I like that. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. How am I going to see God more clearly? I'm going to see him more clearly in righteousness. Now, the Hebrew in righteousness can have a number of different meanings, just like our English. So the translators have translated the Hebrew ambiguity into an English ambiguity. Because all of those meanings are there. We will see God's face more clearly when we are walking in righteousness. So in my righteousness, I will see God more clearly. But it's not simply in my righteousness I see him more clearly. I see him more clearly when I see him in righteousness. When I see God as the righteous God. When I see the righteousness that caused him to send Christ so that he could redeem his people. Because a righteous God cannot simply erase sins with an eraser. A righteous God requires a price to be paid for sin. And God's not going to become unrighteous. He cannot change. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So we've got a righteous God that cannot become unrighteous by letting us slide. A price has to be paid for the sins by this righteous God. So then we have to look at Jesus and see in Him the righteousness of God made real, made manifest. So we will see God more clearly both when we live righteously and when we gaze upon the righteousness of God as shown to us in Jesus. And I want to behold his face in righteousness. All right, we've got time for one more. Psalm sixty-eight, eighteen. You, God, ascended on high Leading a host of captives in your train. It's a parade scene. God is ascending up to his throne in the parade. And in the parade line, he's got his captives in his train. Those that he's conquered. Those that have pledged their allegiance to him as king. His captives are in his train, and he's receiving gifts from among men. God, you know, the king who's won, he's victorious. He's ascending, and we're in his train. We're in the parade, and we're his captives, and we're giving him our gifts. Everything we've got is his. He's the victorious king. Even among the rebellious, everything we've got is his. So he's ascending, the Lord of God. That's where he dwells. The head of the parade with the captives who are giving him gifts. Now, does that sound familiar beyond the Psalms? It should, because Paul uses that in Ephesians 4, 8 through 14. But you, before I put it up, look at it carefully you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts from among men. But look at the way Paul says it in Ephesians 4. Paul says, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, it says, when he ascended... "...on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men." That's the Greek word, anthropos, it means people, men and women. But this doesn't say that men gave him gifts. It says God gave gifts to his captives. Are we to think Paul had a mental lapse, kind of like me, crossing between Leviticus and Numbers? And the Holy Spirit just forgot to check that one when he sight-checked it? No. If, if, if When I translated this passage, I put my quotation marks right there. That's where the quote ends. And what Paul's doing there is Paul's turning that psalm passage upside down for a reason. The psalm is right. God is the king and he does lead the parade and we are his captives and he's got even the rebellious and we are to give him gifts but Paul's saying do you realize what kind of God you serve the king that everybody understands should be receiving these gifts has instead turned around and given us the gifts God the king has given you the gifts and me the gifts. He's given us talents. He's given us resources. He's given us all these things. So yes, we're going to give to God the gifts. But we should never lose sight of the fact he gave them to us to start with. What a God and what a king. A God who gives us those gifts. And we're the recipients. So, my last challenge to you as we close this out and we're running out of we will leave these alone. Oh man, we didn't have time for Kenano Adonai, the Kyrie Eleison. Sorry, you'll have to read the book. My last charge to you is how are you using your gifts for God? Your last take home point. Give him your gifts. Next week I'm excited to tell you why I think suffering speaks of God. I hope you'll come back. Meanwhile, can I bless you in the name of Jesus. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Pray that he will pour out his mercies and his blessings and his peace and his joy. In Jesus Amen.